Hi, good afternoon, and welcome to another Unsanction Your Mind reading. We're airing here from Austin this afternoon on a Friday. Um, I just invited everyone. I just want you to know that we'll be doing some more reading. Sorry. From In the Mouth of the Wolf, a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. This is by Catherine Corcoran. So as promised, we're going to read chapters two and three during the five o'clock hour today. Hopefully this is going to help someone on their journey home. So the gist of the book is that she's following one murder of one Mexican journalist uh, as an AP bureau chief, investigative journalist. And I'll just read the flap tonight because I don't think people got a primer. I read the preface yesterday, but this is the, the quick. Regina Martinez was no stranger to retaliation. A journalist cut out of Mexico's Gulf Coast state of Veracruz, Regina's stories for the magazine Proceso laid out the corruption and abuse underlying Mexican politics. She was barred from press conferences and copies of Proceso often disappeared before they made the newsstands. In 2012, shortly after Proceso published an article on the corruption and two Veracruz politicians and the magazine went missing once again. She was bludgeoned to death in her bathroom. The message was clear. No journalist in Mexico was safe. Catherine Corcoran, then leading the Associated Press coverage of Mexico, admired Regina Martinez's work. Troubled by the news of her death, Corcoran journeyed to Veracruz to find out what happened. Regina hadn't even written the controversial article. But she did have something else that someone didn't want published. Once there, Catherine bonded with four of Regina's grief-stricken mentees, each desperate to prove who was to blame for the death of their friend. Together they battled cover-ups, narco-officials, red tape, and threats to sift through the mess of lies and discover what got Regina killed. A gripping look at reporters who dare to step on the deadly third rail, where the state and organized crime have become indistinguishable. And the mouth of the wolf confronts the now how silencing the free press threatens basic protections and rule of law across the globe. And so Catherine Corcoran is a former Associated Press Bureau chief for Mexico and Central America and a former co-director for of Cronkite Noticias, the bilingual reporting program at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. She has been an Alicia Patterson Fellow, a Hewlett Fellow for Public Policy at Kellogg Institute and the University of Notre Dame, and a Logan Nonfiction uh, Program Fellow. At the AP, she led an award-winning team that broke major stories about cartel and state violence and the abuse of authority in Mexico and Central America. Her columns about Mexican politics and press freedom have appeared in the Washington Post, the Houston Chronicle, sorry, the Houston Chronicle, and Univision Online among other publications. She is currently co-director of Master Lab, an investigative editor training program in Mexico City. Okay, so now we move to chapter two. If not you, then who? April 28th, 2012. Rodrigo Sobranes picked up his cell phone to six missed calls. He had left his phone to shower and dress for a Saturday night out. He and his new wife, Brenda, were attending the annual festival in her hometown nearby. It was a quiet spring evening, somewhere around seven or eight o'clock in the modern two-story townhouse where the newlyweds rented in the Playa Dorado subdivision of South 
the port of Veracruz. They liked it that it was big, two stories with three bedrooms and tall windows shedding lots of light. Like most of Mexico's new construction, it was boxy with flat concrete walls painted industrial white. And it was only a half mile walk from the beach and important for Brenda, who was born in the port and forever tethered to the sea. On windy days, the bone-colored tile floors became dusted with sand. Rodrigo returned a call to one of the two friends who seemed desperate to reach him. What's going on? He asked. You need to answer your phone, guy. The friend said, using Mexican slang for dude. Um, Polo needs to talk to you. And I guess I didn't pronounce it right. Uh, Rodrigo dialed Polo Hernandez. Where are you? Polo asked. At my house. Sit down. Rodrigo, in the second-floor hallway, perched himself on the top stair, resting his free hand on the round white metal railing. What? Tell me. They killed Regina. Brenda is still sitting, getting ready in the nearby bathroom. Suddenly heard Rodrigo shouting, No! No mames! And he yelled into the phone, Don't fuck with me! I wouldn't make up anything like that, Polo insisted. He said they found her at home, not two hours earlier, after a concerned neighbor called the police. She hadn't been seen since the night before. But what happened? I don't know anything more, Polo said. I, I've got to hang up. Rodrigo, still shouting, punched the staircase wall repeatedly with his fist. His thoughts came fast and sung like BBs. It can't be true. She can't be gone. Did she try to defend herself? It was no surprise to him that it took a whole day to discover her. Regina always sequestered herself on the weekends. He started to cry, noticing for the first time that his hand was throbbing from having punched the concrete. He wished he could rewind his life back just a few hours. Brenda ran to his side. In the few years they had been together, she had never seen Rodrigo fall apart. But she understood Regina had been his teacher, his mentor, a journalist of extraordinary rectitude. In Mexican parlance, Regina was brava, Tough. Her role as a journalist and his was to be a watchdog, to give a voice to the laborers, the campesinos, the indigenous, the opposition, the people in Mexico who the official media never covered. This ferocity came from a pint of person, just under five feet, weighing 100 pounds, with the sharp, long facial features signaling her totonic racks, roots, sorry, Large wired rimmed glasses and brown hair. Favoring jeans and platform sandals, Regina raced from interview to interview, always with strong coffee and a paper cup and a bright floral shamula, and a giant handbag woven by the indigenous women of Chiapas, which held all her reporting tools and the latest copy of Proceso. She was strong-willed and unapologetically opinionated in a way that was off-putting to many but that had earned her a circle of fans. Year after this day, her colleagues, especially the men, would chuckle affectionately when remembering how she fought her editors and ordered around the rookie reporters, kicking their stories back to them seven or eight times to be rewritten. Pinche chaparrita! Damn shorty! Her fact-based independent reporting would have been considered normal for news coverage in the United States or other Western countries. In Veracruz, though, it made not only political class nervous, but her colleagues as well. Other reporters didn't like how Regina threatened a long-held system of obedience and self-censorship. But she didn't care much for them. 
to hungry reporters like Rodrigo Soberanes, <clears throat> Regina Martinez was a high beam on a dark road. Rodrigo was tall, freckled, and handsome, a güero with light features and eyes. His family on his mother's side emigrated from England and France, but the currency of light skin in Mexico didn't count for his grandfather, who worked much of his life as a laborer in the United States. Rodrigo's roots on his father's side were equally humble. His great-grandfather was killed in Mexican Revolution, but his grandfather, despite his beginnings, managed to reach the rank of general in the military and later served as a senator for the ruling party from the central state of Querétaro. <laughs> um, this changed everything for the, Rodrigo's father, who grew up in Mexico City and studied chemical engineering at the university. By the time Rodrigo was born, the family had moved to southern state of Chiapas, where his father set up a cashew orchard, among other farming ventures, just across the border from Guatemala. Rodrigo grew up running among the short, top-heavy trees colored with red, orange, and yellow apples that produced what's known in Mexico as nueces de la India, nuts of India. There he saw another side of Mexico, rural, indigenous, poor. He knew what it was like to feel dirt on his hands, and he never lost his love for working the harvest, even as an adult. When Rodrigo was still young, the family moved again to, to Zalapa, where his engineer farmer father wanted to get an advanced degree at the university. There, Rodrigo learned to follow his own lead. Not enamored of the formalities of school, he was kicked out of his private high school in Zalapa, but finished his secondary education in the neighboring town. He wanted to be a journalist from the time he entered University of Veracruz at Salapa. He was thrilled to encounter someone like Regina on the first job, who someone who corralled him into her flock of children, cub reporters she meticulously trained. His parents were not as excited about his chosen profession. They never discouraged him from doing what he wanted, but they did ask him if he could avoid certain topics for security reasons. They also had official connections who could look out for him, like Rodrigo's uncle, Luis Soberanes, a prominent Mexican attorney and head of the country's National Human Rights Commission. For Regina, there were no sacred cows, not even Rodrigo's uncle, whom she skewered at times for being weak on human rights, even as she schooled his nephew. But Rodrigo admired her just the same, his pinche chaparrita. When they learned of Regina's death, Rodrigo and Brenda canceled their plans instantly and decided to make the 90-minute drive north to Salaba, where the murdered woman's friends were already gathering and planning a response. Before they left, another call came, this time from Miguel Valera of the governor's press office. He began asking Rodrigo questions about Regina and how she lived. Did she have a boyfriend? Rodrigo said no and hung up. He found the call strange. Why was the governor's office probing him when he himself barely knew what happened? On the, on the drive north, Brenda tried to console her husband. He had never felt this kind of pain, as if somebody had scorched the inside of his chest. For days, he would wake up thinking he dreamed Regina's killing. They drove quickly along the well-traveled highway that connected the Port of Veracruz with its state capital and the interior foothills. Hugging the coast and then aiming westward towards the mountain range, past the mango orchards and the empty fruit stands, 
past the highway litter lodged in the brittle shoulder grass, past the abandoned swimming pool, past Komodar Karen, the roadside restaurant with the giant painting of Jesus on the side, past the vendor selling the dried fruit and popcorn in the middle of traffic to cars lined up at the toll booth. The closer they got to Salapa, the more real the killing became. Another of Regina's friends, Lev Garcia, had gone to the nearby estate of Tlaxala. I think that's how you say it. It's it's Spanish. <laughs> for the weekend, thanks to the great resources he had at Veracruz, the correspondent for the national newspaper Reforma, he was one of the first reporters to get a call when Regina's body was found. Her identity was confirmed, but he couldn't go see for himself. He called an old friend and co-worker, news photographer Julio Argumero, and asked him to go by Regina's place to see what was going on. Don Jules, as Argumero was known to his friends, rushed to the modest bungalow, only to be held back by caution tape and an anthill of authorities, including soldiers from the Mexican army. As the media story started to appear online, word spread to other Salapa journalists, then to the state, then to the country, and even the world. In just a few more hours, the story would appear on the wire of the Associated Press. 130 miles away in Cordoba, a colonial city at the fo foot of the Sierra Madre, Leopoldo Polo Hernandez was trying to numb his pain with water glasses full of whiskey. It just wasn't working. Despite having several, he didn't even feel drunk, just destroyed as if he had been split open by lightning. As with Rodrigo Sobranes, Regina was Polo's mentor and guide. They ate lunch together in the same restaurant almost every day. Polo had planned a weekend of partying. He traveled from Zalapa, where he was a reporter for the state-owned news service Notimex to his hometown to attend a friend's wedding. He was dressed up helping to shuttle relatives to the groom between the hotel and the reception when his cell phone rang with the readout, Lev Garcia. Carnal. Polo answered in a festive voice, which in translation means flesh, but Mexican slang for brother, carnal. The voice on the other end was hesitant. Are you sitting down? I'm in the car. Of course I'm sitting down. They killed Regina. Another call buzzed on Polo's phone. It was Andres Timoteo, the Veracruz correspondent for the national newspaper La Jornada. He, too, was one of Regina's closest friends and biggest rivals, always working to scoop the state's best reporter. They say they killed Regina. Is it true? Andres X asked. Sorry. Yes, Polo said. Andres was also in Cordoba for the weekend. Polo suggested that they meet a bus station at a bus station in the morning and head to Salapa together. Andres declined. After he hung up, he packed a few things and headed for a bus to the Veracruz airport and a flight to Mexico City. Whatever happened to Regina, he feared what was next. Polo dialed the governor's press office to see what they knew. Miguel Valera answered, We've heard the same, but we can't confirm anything. Fuck you, Polo said, and hung up. Then he ran to the personal cell phone of the governor's communications director, Gina Dominguez, who answered immediately. Motherfuckers, he yelled into the phone. What the fuck happened? We have no details, Gina said, and then paused for a second. It sounds like you think we did this. 
Well, Polo answered, if not you, then who? Chapter 3. We're living in madness. April 29th, 2012. The next day, after Polo Hernandez returned home from the wedding to find his mother waiting up and begging him not to go back to Salapa, as Lev Garcia sat at his computer covering the aftermath, his tears soaking his beard, I was taking a flight from Mexico City to Columbus, Ohio, where I would be attending a seminar at Ohio State University using social media. I handed the reins of the bureau over to someone else for a week. Still, I checked the news on my phone as I did every minute of every day and every time I was about to put it, put it in airplane mode. And I read this one AP wire. A correspondent for the Mexican news magazine Proceso has been found dead in her homes in Veracruz State. Authorities believe the journalist, who often wrote about drug trafficking, was murdered. Regina Martinez's body was found by police inside the bathroom of her home at the state capital of Zalapa, and there were signs of heavy blows to her face and body, the state's attorney general's office said in a statement. Authorities said initial evidence suggested she died of asphyxiation. Sorry, trying to get it out. Mexico was seeing an epidemic of journalist killings, more than a half a dozen each year. The reporters targeted were anything but high profile, nothing like Jamal Khashoggi or Anna Politskovaiska, each of whom, did I say that? I need to do that again. Politskovaiska. I'm going to get this. Each of whom made real trouble for a powerful world leader and world headlines before they were killed. All of the victims were local, some as small bloggers or citizen reporters who posted news stories on Facebook pages. This made them easy to dismiss by both the government and the public. The Mexican press was historically weak at best and corrupt at worst. The country was only two presidential terms into its new democracy after being ruled for 71 years by the Industrial Revolutionary Party, or PRI, its initials in Spanish. The PRI's sole political ideology for seven decades was to stay in power. Period. The press in Mexico was considered mostly a paid voice for the government rather than an independent watchdog. While they didn't control the press outright, PRI governments had various ways to keep the press in line with money, prerequisites, and if that didn't work, threats. With a few exceptions, the media over six decades learned to self-censor and follow the rules, whatever Mexican historian and essayist Daniel Cosio Villegas said, a free press that does not make use of its freedom. Many journalists in turn charge sources for positive stories and user contacts other ways for personal gain. This allowed the state governors and justice officials who had the job of investigating journalists' deaths to accuse the journalists of having gotten crossways in the criminal or corrupt bosses who paid them under the table to do their bidding. And they brought their own fate, government officials asserted. It was very, it was a very effective strategy. And even my own colleagues, other foreign correspondents would dismiss these assassinations, saying that those who were killed were not real journalists. But no one actually knew because the cases were never investigated. Not so with Regina's killing. Correspondents for the major national media in Mexico were rarely assassinated. Though they were often harassed for their stories, they also carried a measure of protection working for large newspapers for a journalistic institution like Proceso. According to the unwritten rules, 
in place up to that point, killing a high-profile pri- correspondent would cause too much noise, draw too much attention to groups who like to operate with stealth. With Regina, an invisible line had been crossed. Every reporter in Mexico and elsewhere in the country read the killing the same way. If they hid Regina, no one was safe. The case was different in another way. It would be difficult for authorities to paint Regina as corrupt or associated with criminals. Everyone, including me, knew she was beyond reproach. I had tried to hire her once. I started covering Mexico in 2006, correspondent for the California newspaper, making periodic trips there for the stories. I had fallen in love with the country a decade earlier when I did a Spanish immersion there. To the foreigner, Mexico charms, cajoles, and seduces. There's so many Mexicos, so many climates, cultures, foods, and languages. The contiguous concentric stacked, native and colonial, current and past, invisible yet present. In his famous essay comparing Mexico and the United States, Mexican Nobel laureate Octavio Paz describes every Mexican as carrying the continuity of 2,000 years of civilization. The ruins of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec city that was built in the likeness of Tula, the Toltec city that was built in the likeness of Teotihuacan, the first city in the American continent, he wrote. It is not something known, but something lived. Mexico was so antithetical to the American emphasis on getting ahead and a lifestyle that made me feel I was under constant stress. Among the middle and working class, there was zero sense of entitlement. To an outsider, Mexicans lived in the moment. They seemed to wake every day looking not for ways to get ahead, but rather for the necessities to survive which made them infinitely more gracious. They handled misfortune with a dark sense of humor that was funny until they turned it on you. Nothing was off limits. I had no idea, like most Americans, that a country so culturally rich and radically diverse stood just down the road from Sarapes and cheap taquilla at the border towns and the high-rise hotel zones of the Americanized resorts. When I found out, I couldn't stay away. For linear thinking gringos, there's a complexity to the culture that was difficult for me to process, maddening even. It was as if the country had a way of taking the most of the norms that I had brought from El Norte and tossing them in the air. In Mexico, yes meant no. Ahorita meant perhaps never. And if you had a problem, the last thing you did was call the police or the government. That would only bring you more trouble. People kept their heads down. This was in part due to events through, throughout Mexico's history, like the savage treatment of Native Mexicans under the 300 years of conquest, forcing them to live double lives. In the vast Maya territory of the Yucatan Peninsula, for example, the people were devout Catholics loyal to the Spanish crown by day by, while maintaining the religious traditions of the native languages under cover of night. If they were caught, they were beaten or even tortured. The modern rule of the PRI mimicked the conquest with its iron fist of corruption. People learned to go along to get along, but never to trust authority. In Mexico, you said what people wanted to hear, but not what you, not what you knew. Mexicans had become over decades or centuries, perhaps ingenious at solving their own problems. 
Some were clever, some were criminal. Some stuck, struck us gringos as absurd. But that reaction was all about us, not the Mexicans. One time I was meeting a new source who showed up on a nag of a Harley Davidson, saying he would take me to the spot where we had agreed to do the interview. Though he offered me a helmet, I thought immediately about what would happen if we had an accident on the rattled trap of a bike. I was between jobs and without health insurance. Even if I was not injured, a spill would kill my laptop, which held my entire life. I told him, you know, I would follow in a taxi. He laughed. That's the difference between you and me, he said. Mexicans don't worry about what could go wrong because they know we know it will. We know we're fucked. Covering the country was magical. The big stories were migration and a surprisingly tight presidential race between Felipe Calderon and Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who everyone, or AMLO, as everyone had thought, would run away with a victory then in 2006. A foreign reporter could roam freely. All you needed in the pre-Google Maps world was Guia Rohi, Mexico's remarkably detailed street guide and a taxi driver that was trustworthy. Ever since the 1985 kidnapping, torture, and murder of U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agent Enrique Kiki Camarena in Mexico, when the U.S. government nearly shut down the border and used its full power to take down several top drug lords, the conventional wisdom that the cartels didn't attack U.S. officials inside of Mexico uh, was wrong. The same went for U.S. journalists, who were not susceptible to the political or criminal pressures endured by Mexican press. Going after us would really create unwanted attention and possibly activate the gringo posse, which always got its man. When Alfredo Corchado, Mexico's correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, faced a cartel threat in 2007, and international news media publicly rallied around him, the U.S. Embassy in Mexico issued a press release demanding his safety. So a lot had changed in 2010 when the AP received a threat. The following week after the threat and after the Mexican news photographer was killed in Ciudad Juarez, the Committee to Protect Journalists issued a report on journalist assassinations in Mexico and held a conference. The group was pressuring Felipe Calderon to increase protections for the press. I covered the conference and in the process met a newspaper editor named Patricia Mercado, director of El Imagen, in the central state of Zacatecas. Mercado had been educated in the United States, was a Knight Fellow at Stanford University, and before deciding to return to her home state, was the director of El Economista, a respected national business journal. When I interviewed her for my story, story, she told me, she had no problem following direction, directions from drug gangs on what to report. Sorry, I have to take a pause. That was a tough sentence to get out. She had published an article handed to her by organized crime to keep her staff from being attacked. If it's a question of life or death, I have no trouble making a decision. The lives of my reporters are most important, she said. Her quote stunned me, not because she took orders from narcos, but because I was starting to realize that when I thought about what I would be, what I've done in her situation, I had no answer. In my case, when we received a threat, we had the strength of an international news agency. Vice President of Global Security was on a plane to Mexico City 
same day to lead an investigation and put in mitigating measures. The American way of fighting back, of exposing bad guys, of believing that publishing what you know is power, didn't hold up in a place where you had shaky rule of law. Patricio Mercado had no backup. The AP changed the way we covered the country. Journalists had to travel in teams. We had GPS tracking and regular cell cell phone check-ins for people reporting in sensitive areas. Reporters negotiating unknown territory were instructed to map out stopping points where they would investigate whether it was safe to advance. Sometimes they followed an army or police convoys for protection. Though we also had to consider that such caravans were targets for cartel pot shots. Those were close calls. A photographer covering a hurricane in rural northeastern Mexico accidentally ran across uniformed Zetas who simply told him to scram, so he did so gladly. In 2012, we sent a reporter to the border state of Coahuila after Mexican Marines killed Zeta's leader, Heriberto Lazcano, there. Wandering around the city, the tiny town, sorry, wandering around the tiny town of Progreso with a local freelancer, the AP reporter came upon some workers in a boathouse at a local reservoir. They told her that the drug lord had owned a ranch nearby and moved freely in that area. While the reporter was outside calling me with this information, the med said to the freelancer, you can go, but we're keeping the girl. The freelancer thinking on his feet told the workers, you don't want her. She has a chip, meaning like a GPS locator. Then he walked outside while the reporter was still on the phone with me and said, we need to get out of here now. The most difficult moment in my job came in 2014 when one of our teams was investigating what we suspected was the extrajudicial execution of 21, 22 people by the Mexican army. The government issued a three sentence press release about a supposed shootout with a drug cartel gunman. A gang opened fire on army units in Mexico state, south of Mexico city, provoking a, fierce gun battle. 22 gunmen died while only one soldier was wounded. Everyone who read those three lines thought the same thing. How could 22 people die in a confrontation and government forces walk away with barely a scrape? It sounded like a massacre. The AP broke the story that it was. A reporter and photographer set out for the scene. A large warehouse in the rural area in the heart of the cartel territory. There were signs of stray gunfire, but none of the pockmarks or damage a building would have sustained in a battle with high-powered weapons that killed 22 people. Instead, they saw a cinder block wall, periodically dotted with two bullet holes close together, chest high, the bloodstains, as if people had been lined up and shot. A surviving witness later confirmed that most of the 22 were indeed shot after they surrendered to soldiers. While reporting the story in the remote town of San Pedro Limon, our team came across four young men in civilian clothing with ammunition belts and semi-automatic rifles guarding a white SUV, presumably members of the drug gang that controlled the area. We in the Mexico City office and the team in the field were in telephone contact per the security protocol. But just as our reporter 
and photographers said the armed men were fixing on them. They lost phone service. We tried dozens of times to call them back without success. For the first time in my job, I considered calling the federal police for help getting our team out of there. It was drastic, not to mention risky. We investigated and covered federal police. We didn't rely on them. Sometimes they were working for cartels. Sometimes they were just blatant criminals. (laughs) Once during a massive protest in Mexico City, a band of federal police, also known as federales, Officers pushed one of our photographers into the crowd amid the chaos and flat out robbed him of his camera equipment, cutting the pack right off his back. But I was out of ideas at the moment. My boss, who had reported it in many war zones, told me to give it another 20 minutes. In my five years as bureau chief, my biggest fear was that someone would get hurt or worse on my watch. Sometimes I woke in the middle of the night, moon-eyed, thinking about a correspondent who was out in a volatile part of the country and wondering whether I'd made the right decision to let them go. Still, this is the longest 20 minutes of my career. Just as the time was up, the photo editor got a call that the team was okay. They returned safely, and the story they told brought international attention to human rights abuses by the Army. Soldiers were arrested, and two survivors of the extrajudicial mass murder who had been jailed to be quiet were freed. After five years, my job as bureau chief came to an end. I was relieved to hand security matters over to someone else, but I couldn't seem to put one perplexing notion behind me. Mexico, a country that was not at war, that had a democratically elected government, and that was arguably the most strategic partner to the United States, was one of the most dangerous countries on earth for journalists. The situation has only grown worse over time, with Mexico more recently ranking number one, tied with Afghanistan and murder journalists. Dictatorships and oligarchies are enemies of the free press, but democracies? Wasn't a free press crucial to any democratic system? How can free speech be guaranteed as it is in the Mexican Constitution and be lethal at the same time. Like everything else in Mexico, the answer came with layers and contradictions. While the press was clearly a target, it was also a participant. The narcos were tapping into a system of co-opting the media that was decades in the making, but this time with much deadlier consequences. There were countless rumors of top editors who were paid to carry cartel news in their newspapers, or who benefited financially. The director of a local news agency in the western state of Michoacan, uh, someone at the AP who, I hope I said that right, someone at the AP who used regularly um, appeared on a leaked video with drug lord El Servando Latuta Gomez, who was counting out of bills for the journalists who, as the two discussed, and how the cartel could get better media coverage, When journalists like him got caught, they said they had no choice but to participate and take the money. The old plata o plomo, take the money or take a bullet. One Veracruz television anchor told me that he was contacted several times in 2009 by cartel representatives offering money for coverage. At first, he heard from the journalists who worked on behalf of the cartels. 
He turned off his phone to avoid getting more calls until he was visited by the local cartel boss himself, Brolio Orellano Dominguez, <coughs> a.k.a. El Gonzo. El Gonzo suggested the anchor start answering his phone. Think of your family, he said. I'm not the station owner, but I am not the director, he protested. There's nothing I can do. Then tell your bosses, El Gonzo said. Even after El Gonzo was murdered in a shootout a short time later, the threats didn't stop. The anchor received an order from the Zetas to show footage of his program of a banner they had hung to warn their rivals. After he did so, the cartel decided it wasn't enough and ordered him to read the banner aloud on air, which he did. This sounds like a hostage situation. Later, they ordered him to stop reporting on a major news story, the disappearance of Francisco Serrano Aramoni, head of maritime customs for the Port of Veracruz, who, according to security camera footage, was detained on his way home from work by Veracruz Transit Police. He had been sent to clean up corruption at the port by the president himself, but presumably was taken out by the Zetas, who wanted to maintain control. More than a decade later, he remains missing. I knew this story because we had tried to investigate it at the Associated Press, but in the end, people were too afraid to talk. The station was preparing an update on the case. The anchor went to his editors. If this story runs, I'm not coming to work. The station killed the story. When I tried to check out the veracity of this anchor, I asked a trusted colleague in Veracruz what he knew about him. The reporter scoffed. He said, that guy's paid by the governor, he said. He takes expensive driving trips every year paid for by the governor. This is how reporting was was in Mexico when you attempted to verify information. Journalists trashed other journalists. No one trusted anyone. This distrust kept the Mexican press corps unsuccessfully divided in the face of the real enemy. In the Colombian drug war of the 1990s, the media combated threats and intimidation by banding together. Normally, competing publications would agree to print the same investigative story on the same day without the bylines so that no single medium or writer could be targeted by the cartel. The story would go everywhere at the same time. The Colombian model continued continually came up as a remedy suggested for Mexican media trying to report on corruption and drug trafficking and was dismissed almost as quickly. Alejandro Junco de la Vega, founder of the Grupo Reforma, with two of Mexico's most professional and aggressive newspapers, Reforma and El Norte, once told me he could never agree to a consortium of Mexican journalists publishing the same story. I wouldn't know who I'm working with, he said. I wouldn't know who they are working for. Junco, in turn, was criticized by other journalists for abandoning Mexico. Though he still ran major newspapers in Mexico City, Guadalajara, and Monterey, he's, see, yeah, he and his family lived in San Antonio, Texas, for security reasons. <laughs> in such dubious environment, I had to carefully vet any Mexican reporter we hired to collaborate on AP Stories. This is what led me to Regina Martinez. In September 2011, I needed someone to cover a particularly grotesque cartel mass murder in Veracruz. Just south of the gritty Veracruz port is an upscale city called Boca del Rio, the mouth of the river where Hampa River dubs into the Gulf of Mexico. While Veracruz resembles a crumbling seaside Havana, 
Boca del Rio is is Miami, modern and gleaming, with white facades of chic restaurants and shopping malls. In the middle of the city, next to the convention center, is a circular expressway surrounding a three-story sculpture called Los Voladores, a tall pole with men flying in circles around it, tethered to the pole by their ankles. The sculpture depicts a pre-Columbian ceremony of the Totonac, indigenous to Veracruz, which legend says was performed to call on the gods to end a drought. It stands at the center of a proud modern city. Just as Mexico's state prosecutors were set to meet in the convention center, two white cargo trucks stopped in the middle of the expressway in broad daylight, dumped 35 bodies at the base of Los Volodores, sorry, and drove away. The criminals were getting bolder by the day and seemed to be in a contest to see who could inflict the most terror. The freelancer we normally hired in Veracruz told us he couldn't get any information on the body dumping, even as we read ample details online from the local papers. After a while, we couldn't only conclude that he was too scared to cover the crime and that the AP was caught flat-footed on a huge story. It would take almost a day for one of our correspondents from Mexico City to get there, but we needed someone on our ground at that moment to get us an accurate picture, given that the officials, the state government, kept changing the details of what happened. How about Regina Martinez? said our desk supervisor, who spent many years in Mexico as a reporter and editor. So <clears throat> I'm getting some some things in the chat here from... Okay, we'll get to you back, Bill. So how about Regina Martinez? You know, a reporter and editor who'd worked with Martinez during her stint as an AP contributor from Veracruz. I don't know what happened to her, he said. I think she got another job, but she was really good. Regina's name remained at the bottom of our freelancer list, which I inherited as a bureau chief. I had noticed it. But the names at the bottom of the list represented the people we no longer called, mostly because they were no longer available, some because they had proven to be problematic. In that moment, I was desperate, willing to try anything. I knew nothing about Regina Martinez. But if the desk supervisor said she was good, that was all the recommendation I needed. I dialed a number and Regina answered right away. Regina, this is Kathy Corcoran. I'm the AP Bureau Chief in Mexico. I said, I see you've worked for us in the past. I wonder if you could help us out on the bodies dumped in, in the Boca del Rio. I don't know. She's hesitated. I'm really busy. She told me she was in the middle of covering this act of narco-terrorism for, for Proceso, but in true reporter form, or perhaps Regina form, she hesitated to say no. Reporters have a tendency to want to help if it's a big breaking story let me think about it she said call me back i phoned her again a while later i'm really sorry she said but i just don't have time we found a way to report on the crime and that weekend regina had the cover story in proceso along with a colleague Jorge carrasco another person who would become central to her story that was the extent of my interaction with Regina until I was taking off on my flight to Columbus. Reading about her murder was for me a little, literally a parting of the waters, a watershed moment. Her death brought the faceless distant assassinations closer. 
I made a mental note to do more when I returned to give the story an in-depth treatment. I remember reading in early reports right be- right after Regina's death that she had been drinking and dancing with friends the night she was killed and then an argument broke out earlier in the morning. Oddly, that made sense to me. In places like Zalaba, everyone knew everyone from the from at least grade school. The narcos and malandros, the thugs, the bad guys, were people you grew up with, family members even. Sometimes they showed up at your parties. Sometimes their rivals showed up too, and people ended up dead. We wrote a lot of those stories. Even as I found myself with a vivid image of Regina in her living room, partying with friends until 4 a.m., they estimated... She was killed because I had done just that several times with my Mexican colleagues in Mexico City. It was always casual, around a table with some beer, cigarettes, and tequila. Just as you thought about calling a taxi, the arrival of a new guest jolted the dying evening back to life. 11 p.m. became 1 a.m., then 3 a.m., then 5. At some point, someone always got up and started dancing. I could recognize almost immediately the journalist at the parties. We shared the same reporting sensibilities, but the Latin American journalists were more renegade, bohemian, cynical, with reason. Some grew up under authoritarian rule, or if not, they lived real memories of dictators and tyrannies. Their parents or grandparents escaped. Francisco Franco ruled Spain until 1975. Pinochet, Chile until 1990. Fujimori, Peru, till 2000. These reporters knew terrorist bombings in theaters and martial law. Many had originally studied to be lawyers or poets. Some of the children of socialists and old school communists who had lost their livelihoods or were driven into exile. Though these journalists now lived in democracies, they took nothing for granted, especially not the free press. They thought it naive that we Americans did. They also lived modestly. Decent pay for a journalist in Mexico City was about 1000 a month, but the average Zalapa was about 350 a month. $350 a month, with some salaries as low as $65 a month. Most journalists were, we worked with, with a minimum of two media outlets to make a living wage. This was part of what made them vulnerable to corruption. In Regina's case, I imagine... An impromptu party in a one-story stucco bungalow with a garden in front, not unlike her real home when I finally went there. The one in my mind was painted yellow against a green hillside. I conjured a very specific picture in my brain from the small details of the early stories, a tattered couch covered by a throw and a rustic wooden coffee table heavy with beer bottles and stuffed ashtrays. I pictured Regina with her short hair wearing a huipil, the traditional Mexican cotton blouse with an embroidered yoke that was popular among female journalists. They were cheap, colorful, and roomy, great for working in the humid subtropics because the breeze could sail right through the fabric. I had already dived into the case in my head. I would later learn that my imagination got only two things right, the short hair and the bungalow. There was another news story around the time of Regina's death that failed to enter my head then. Because I had unwittingly bought the version the authorities were seeding in the local media. But it had buzz, I later discovered, especially among Regina's friends and colleagues at Proceso. Three weeks before Regina was killed, the magazine's writer, Gennaro Villamil, 
published a story about two Veracruz politicians, Alejandro Montano and Reynaldo Escobar, who were both running for seats at Camara Diputados, Mexico's lower house of the National Congreso de la Union. The story, citing leaked documents, said Montano was an accumulated a mar- he had accumulated a large amount of wealth for a public servant. Escobar, meanwhile, had the number two man the ex governor Fidel Herrera had seen and overseen the takeover of the state by a cartel known as La Compañía, according to testimony from protected witnesses. When the story came out, 3,000 copies of Proceso disappeared from Salapa's newsstands. Like, bye, they were gone. On my last day in Ohio, I got a phone call from the AP. Three more journalists, all photographers, were murdered in Veracruz less than a week after Regina's death. This time, they were found hacked in pieces in green garbage bags that were fished from a sewage canal in Boca del Rio. They had been reported missing the day before. This is one of several moments in covering violence in Mexico when the act seemed to so extreme, I couldn't really process it. Four journalists were killed in a week. That happened nowhere, not in war zones, not in dictatorships. It was beyond explanation for us. The people assigned to explain the events to the rest of the world. The editor in charge wanted to send a team to Veracruz. Go for it, I said. Regina's story was overtaken by something bigger and more horrific. The international media, the Associated Press, New York Times, CBS, The Guardian, descended on Veracruz as local journalists left the state. No one knew how many fled. Rumors said dozens. Porcesso reported 20 or so. Most newspaper editors refused to take our calls or talk about what happened. We're living in madness, one editor told the AP. He wouldn't give his name for fear of his life. And that, my friends, ends chapter three. That's what it's like to report in Mexico. Okay, let's see who's with us. Oh, so we have Gregor, William, Brian, and Julia. Welcome back to the program. And I, I don't know that Brian is, this is a first for Brian. I haven't seen him before. All right. Would anybody like to jump up here and give it a talk? Did anything I say or read here tonight have ring any bells, send off any whistles? I look at William's uh, chat here. Anti-black racism and sterilization. I guess this is uh, this is some stuff regarding say intelligence and organized crime. Okay. All right, William. You Mike. So you're well, filling the, the the chat with a lot of links about um, the Supreme Court and PR. Psychiatry, biometric uh, repression. What are you? What are you gaming at? Well, what I'm saying is, in America, it's well organized and it's worked through our criminal justice and uh, system, uh, eugenics, starting in the early 1900s. That wasn't just against blacks; it was anyone who considered 
they would often use that um, rather than criminalize somebody, put them in a mental institution, claim they were crazy if they got pregnant by the wrong person. Right. Inconvenient women. That was typically the, the treatment of inconvenient women and the indigenous. Yeah. The Buck versus Bell case, 1927 in particular, that woman just got pregnant by, let's see, it was a sad story. She hadn't done anything wrong. She, she, she was from a single mother, like you said, inconvenient women. So she got taken to be a, basically a, a, a house attendee for a, a wealthy couple. She got pregnant by somebody involved with that family. And then they claimed she, her, her mother and her, her younger sister were all mentally feeble and needed to be sterilized. I mean, this, this it was absolutely an abomination. What I was trying to say is our government has weaponized uh, the, the, the system. Um, right in the past. In, in the past, yes, they have. And also now, the Dr. Bregan, if you follow uh, the links down to Dr. Bregan, um, he fought uh, chemical lobotomies, I'm sorry, uh, actual physical lobotomies of front lobes since 1970 and now chemical lobotomies. This is being used um, to this day. Uh, it's, even now where you see, uh, this is one dear to your heart. I know for uh, doctors who were fighting the, uh, uh, call it the government COVID narrative, for example. They'll claim they're crazy, incompetent, insist to keep their license. They have to get a compaval or psychiatric care. And yeah, I guess this it, ropes around uh, some of the, the, the maltreatment of um, Jordan Peters, Peterson that might be going on in Canada. That's that, that's the yeah. closest I can get to what's current. Uh, do right, you have right, anything right. to say about the content of the reading? Yeah, well... Um, I was just, as you were reading it, um, of course, that's well before my time in another part of the country, uh, or well, not before my time so much, just another part of the world. And uh, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I, I'm disappointed and saddened. Um, but it, it reminds me of, um, I've listened to John Perkins on uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman and how our government can work in uh, foreign countries um, basically in this fashion, the way you describe actually through the cartels, the drug running and um, the arms, arms trade where mm, Whitney Webb refers to as national crime syndicate. The yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm beginning to see some rays of commonality. Right. About how, how certain journalists have been kind of bought off and, and sold sold themselves to the government to stay uh, in the trade. And that's something I'm beginning to see here in the United States. And all I see is really, really fat cartels. Right. So what I don't want to admit is that there is a process that is happening, a process of corruption. Okay, but there's a lot of international money flowing to these cartels. They're buying NGOs who are buying politicians who are also buying the press. And I, I don't want that to be true, but it's beginning to look like cartels are running the place subtly. Okay, and it's not it's not necessarily one or two cartels. They may or may not be Mexican cartels 
but there's indirect influence being uh, leveraged. And if you say th- things that the government doesn't like or the intelligence community doesn't like, um, the intelligence community is corrupt. Okay, I will just say that. They function like a cartel. There's been news in this country that the intelligence community has cartel, you know, they've embedded themselves with cartels at the border and are fattening themselves that way. So it could be that there is a is a core corrupt contingency of of the US uh, intelligence establishment that are essentially drug cartels. I mean, could could you reasonably make that argument? Does anybody want to rebut that for me? You know, call me to order. Tell me I'm full of shit. You know? No, I I would say um couple things. Um, I mean, uh, when, when, uh, Whitney Webb refers to it as a national crime syndicate where there's actually Operation Underworld, a uh, intelligence uh, organized crime uh, uh, dark op that uh, has been well established uh, um, and continues to operate to this day, she suggests, under the national crime syndicate. And that would include gun running and drug running and everything you could think of um, to raise money to circumvent any uh, uh, legislative restrictions for financing. Well, that's what Iran Contra was about. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was pretty clear to me, and, and actually, Panama was involved right. because they they were doing they were they, they were Noriega's bank. Right. So it was a, it was extremely embarrassing for Panama to to hold um, all of that drug uh, largesse and then get busted and then also summarily invaded, which it wasn't really evade, invasion. It was kind of like a, you know, let's knock over this, this element of the cartel business and, and try to get something back under control. But I'm beginning to think that there's a lot of commonality between our intelligence community, drug cartels, and what's happening, you know, where they threaten our politicians. And they also threaten journalists. They're like, well, we won't give you access. We won't give you this. We won't give you that. We'll, we'll cut you out. We'll threaten anyone you talk to. That kind of thing. Yeah, I was, I know Greg's going to make a comment, Greg. I was trying to. We finally got there. I'm, what I'm saying is there is no separation. The drug cartels work hand in hand with the gun running. And um, there's a lot of, unfortunately, uh, coordination between U.S. intelligence and, and what's going on. We see it as a threat, but there it's a tool. Do you see what I'm saying? Otherwise, they would crush it. They could easily... Uh, and I know there are interventions like that when things get out of hand, but certainly we can send special forces down anywhere we want to and take out cells. Do you follow me? Right. When okay. But, and they, ex- they're going to expect us at some point because there were reports in the spring of last year, because we're in 2023 now, but it was, it was spring of last year that they had acquired because they have so much money from running all of these people right. every day, millions and millions and millions of dollars every month. 
okay, they're making from trafficking people into this country. Right. Okay. They have enough money to, to buy their own mercenary army. Yeah. So they're, they're stacking up. Right, right, right. And a lot of, you see, um, some of that is, you know, okay. The undocumented workers in this country, the vast majority of, them are, of Mexican Guatemalan people in this country are working. They're holding jobs. And, and, but they're working for American owned companies. And, you know, I worked in the construction business down in San Diego County, uh, Santa Barbara, San Diego, uh, for a total of 20 years. And there were guys on the crew we knew were coming over from the border and they were hard workers and the foreman had pipelines and, but they see what that did to the labor rate down South was, was bring it, drop it down substantially. And then for the same company I worked off up North, I can get up to $20 an hour more when I worked in Monterey kind of. And so, um, uh, but this was the, to the advantage of the employer, your family. And then of course that was true in the restaurant, you know, the, the, the um, dishwashers, the, some of the staff in the back, do you follow me? And so this is like ongoing. Um, it's integrated. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that um, it's uh, played off to the advantage of of, of corporate um, predators, really, who want well, to minimize. Well, the way this started out was that you know, calling over, you know, my you know, migratory labor from Mexico right. for seasonal labor for for uh, agrarian. Sure. Business for agribusiness wasn't, wasn't any big deal. They would come over, they would work the season and they'd go back to Mexico. And it's still that way here in Texas. And, but everything about the law and the way things happen has changed. So you could come over here, you know, if you, if you rose up in the ranks, so to speak, and, and, and collated your money, you could buy a small house or a property here in Texas, you know, work the season, live there, and then you would just go back to Mexico afterwards. Okay, this is a lifestyle for so many people that uh -huh. lived and, and worked in agribusiness. Okay, and it's it's still kind of that way, but you know, it's gotten really distorted, and the cartels have created a, another system for people who 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 do business over here in the country. Uh, they owe they owe their backs to the to the cartel to be here. That's what so, I was. Thank you. Yeah, we get we're getting to the bottom of things. This is where I was going, Greg. I just didn't. It started. Well, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay I'll just say it. They owe their backs to cartels. Okay, they're working for slave slave wages, and they send half of it back to their families. Yes. To to feed the coyotes. Okay, half of it half of it just goes back to them so that they can be here. It's still more than they would make in 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 uh, in Mexico being poor. It would still be more right. than being poor in Mexico, even if they give half of it to the to the coyotes mm -hmm. for payback. It's still more. So they do it, and they do it religiously. Western Union could probably give you spreadsheets of information for at least twenty five years about how it goes. Absolutely, absolutely, and if you're our whistleblower finding the system and and like me and then filing lawsuits to expose it on all different levels um 
what I'm trying to get at. If, if you're born here and you've become aware of what's going on, first of all, I got laid off constantly when I spoke up on job sites. And then, but I was a heavy, at the level of heavy. Oh my out. gosh, I'm so surprised. I'm so surprised, William, that they didn't just hang on to you and say, oh my God, we've seen the error of our ways. Why don't we just, why don't we just clean up our act and do what you ask? <laughs> well, no, I know, but I just, <laughs> I had to take a stand, you know what I mean? For no, myself I mean, and my coworkers. That, but, you know, I mean, if, if, you know, I'm not surprised that they mistreated you. Yeah, so I got laid off repeatedly, but I was a good heavy equipment operator. I'd get another job, and but the um, but then uh, when even when I came back here, back to New England, I saw the same thing. Um, uh, fellows working um, Mexican, mostly Mexican crews, with a couple people who spoke English who were in foreman levels and supervisor levels, doing contracts here throughout New England, um, and. Uh, uh, it's just, uh, what I'm trying to point out is, um, this is a common thing and, and it's not, um, something that the owners of the companies want to change and ice really like, isn't doing anything about it. You know, I've well, called I, ICE. I don't think it's a nice thing. I think that, you know, that there's, there are many hackles to, to be negotiated. Okay. Uh -huh. The labor and exchange presence. Uh, should be really something addressed by the State Department. Okay. The State Department. Okay. And no one has pulled them into committee with DHS. Okay. The State Department needs to get their ass roasted. Okay. Let's begin with what happened on the Twitter files and the GEC, um, GEC presence online. Uh -huh. Okay. So the next time they have a congressional hearing about the problems that happened uh, to examine the whole of society approach uh, employed by DHS. Okay. They were exchanging these SARS or these suspicious activity reports as actionable intelligence with the GEC. Okay. And this is the state department focusing inward at you. Okay. And they shouldn't be doing that. Okay, that's a foreign agency, foreign directed agency to serve you when you were stranded in Turkey. Okay, that's the point of the U.S. State Department. That and to process people into the principles of our citizenship and to make sure that people have the right passports, those sorts of things. And they're, they're strongly threaded through the Senate. And through the Congress, because everybody who has a passport has to work with who? Our State Department. So they are a servant leader to your interest, representing you abroad. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay? They should not be dictating inward to you with your dollars. Okay? This pro program... This GEC program started under Hillary Clinton, okay? Hillary Clinton, okay? And none of it makes sense because Hillary doesn't make sense. <laughs> Hillary, Hillary had to have her own intelligence agency because I guess 70 plus in, a, in the DNI agency tree was not enough. So when they get pulled over for, you know, they're going to have to get up and, and talk to Congress about what they did. 
and how many American speech accounts that they tried to take down at Twitter, they should also get, you know, nice and lit, nice and fired under their ass for what? How they have been handling Mexico's transit system into this country. Mm -hmm. Okay. They have a role. They forfeited their role. They're like, wah, wah, wah. And they've been doing it for far too long. Okay, they tr- they control the visa and immigration system from the paperwork side of things. Okay, and before they put another honest onto the United States citizen, you know, show us more data, show us more identity, show us your ass. Okay, if they show, you know, this, no, 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 no. The visa department needs to expel those who have overstayed. Goodbye. Okay. And then they need to fix and moderate, get some knobs instead of switches, and then put a time limit on worker visas from certain states like Mexico. So, and there are proposals on the table that will work. They just weren't listened to. And you're right. You can say it's special interest, but I think that there actually just is a forfeit of caring. People are just stunned into doing nothing. And part of that, unfortunately, William, is probably due to corruption. People working in the Mexican state will twist and fold and and contort themselves and contort the Mexican embassy officials to do what they want, represent and say what they want. Okay? And so I believe that there's corruption right there. That's our largest trading partner. And if we don't look at the Mexican embassy and we don't look at the way that things happen in Mexico with the Mexican embassy and the representation that the Mexican embassy state department, uh, we're going to get, we're just going to have more problems because there's, there's a heavy reliance on the Mexico embassy slash state department. That isn't being discussed, even in polite company. It's not being discussed, period. I'm discussing it now because I'm sick of this shit. And we got to get it done. We got to get it done. There's no right. more time. There's too many people, too many people flooding Del Rio. And I'm done. I just, I moved to Texas. I'm sick of this shit. I've been watching my whole life. You know, it's time, it's time to do something. It's time to do something. So... <clears throat> Um, this is this is kind of like at the top i'm like it's right underneath my chin i've had it i've had it i i hear you and i what i would suggest the issue is economics in other words the situation provides a low pool uh, cost pool of labor that that isn't doesn't have any rights isn't going to be able to stand up for any rights well they they are under two under two tyrants you know, there is the hidden system that they're coming into where they call living in the shadows. Okay. One is they owe their back to the coyote. And the other is that, the, you know, they've got a, a, a worker system over here that, that ref- refuses to see them, see anybody. And they don't care. Right. You know, there, there are enclaves in this country where you don't have to know English and, and fuck you. You know, they don't care. <laughs> well. What, what I was trying to say, my experience is that the people who own the companies, there's all, eventually there's white people 
what I, you know, who own the companies here and, and their immediate lower management, and then it trickles down. They're very aware of what's happening, and there are, this is a system that exists because it benefits the profiteering off of the situation. Then if you, what I was trying to allude to is that if you, it's so layered, if you try and fight it, you're going to get laid off. If you, if you keep, the, the police know it's happening, and you well, will get arrested. Immigration enforcement, that's been one of the problems is that they, they if it's only actionable crime, mm-hmm. like, if they're not doing anything wrong, if they're employed by these, these, you know, farming or processing plants or something like that, right. you would see these enormous busts that, that Donald Trump would do. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, busted, he busted one high-profile chicken plant Right, and a I remember bunch of, uh, a bunch of illegals were were uh, were carted off in a in a in a theatric spectacle, okay, and they were probably booted out of the country, um, you know, and it, it pulled on everybody's heartstrings. But I I think that they failed to understand the issues. It's I wish it was as simple as 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 public economics. The narco tyranny in Mexico is where all the money goes. Okay, those people are are serially shaken down by right. criminal elements. Okay, and all the money, if you're thinking about, you know, the fat cats and the corporations here in America, well, those are at least our corporations are conformant to the law. Okay, the FEC, the SEC, the FTC can go in and and the FBI can take your computers. They can take your money. They can take your stuff. Okay. If you violate the law over there, they are the law. Mm-hmm. So they take, they take everything. Right. Right. And like when Trump's, I assume it was ice that busted the poultry plants, but how about the managers and the upper managers and the owners? I mean, they know who their workers are and that they're undocumented. So they're there. I would say they're the lowest rung of the problem. But, you know, you and I are not going to solve this by by attacking the the employees, the employing, you know, the employing people. OK, we're not going to solve that today, tonight. OK, because the visa people the, at the State Department and Homeland Security and the, the Federal Bureau of Investigations all have a duty here. OK, and for not enforcing the law on Americans, OK, which they can they can say, listen, this person shall not be here because visa violation, goodbye. And they take them away. The government goes in and whoop, takes them away. All right. So they lose their labor. That will force a correction in the marketplace. They're like, well, you know, it's a risk we can't afford. We just trained this person. We're just dumping money into a hole, not training American citizens or Americanized labor that's legal we didn't check their papers or their resources before we hired them that's our fault that's on us okay that's how it will probably go you know hiring under the table labor is really something for you know massage parlors and you know back-end beer bars it's it's really something not very good i mean there's always going to be a seedy uh business or two out there bad businesses that shouldn't be doing so 
they're they're doing things that are pro prohibited under the law like prostitution and uh you know clandestine sex work and la 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 okay we all know they're they're doing dirty business okay which is not that's not above board we know that and you know the government will come get them when the government comes and gets them but regular corporate agribusiness and other businesses that employ you know, transitory labor or migrant labor, migrant workers, okay, and other people who should not be there, the government still has a duty. The, the onus is on the government to enforce immigration, okay? And so it's not, it, it, you can't tell a corporation that's processing chicken, enforce immigration. No. Well, that's well, that's well, the responsibility and the duty of the government. Yeah, but there's something that goes on, Sheila, I was trying to describe. I mean, I'm talking almost every construction company I worked for had a foreman who had the pipeline, knew where to bring the workers. They, they developed networks. And the upper management knew this. And they're readily employing people with fake papers. It's all, everybody on the site knew it. And if you spoke okay. up like me, like a, well, here I was, you know, born in America, and I wasn't speaking up to bust the guys without papers. I was speaking up because they would then not, we wouldn't get our breaks or we get a lower wage overall. It weakened the whole market. And, and this even happened on federal sites. This even happened. You wouldn't believe this on Camp Pendleton when I was doing unexploded ordinance removal and cleanup. I'm still going to flip back. I mean, they wouldn't do it unless they knew that there was an embargo on enforcement. That's why they're doing it, William. It's corruption. Yeah, but they're buying out the government, so they're not enforcing. But it's the Are corporations. You sure about that? I mean, if you have proof of that, I'd really love to see it. You can send it to me on my uh, bio site. <laughs> Listen, if you think that it's <laughs> not the transnational me. corporations that have bought this government, then I don't know what to say. I mean, these are companies. No, I mean, I need proof. I would need proof. This happens every day. It's called lobbyists. Oh, well, I still need proof. Listen, all I can tell you what was happening on the sites, even federal Superfund sites, when I was working for Shaw Environmental. You want to I, talk sure about... If you, worked on, if you just worked it a little bit and you got me some, some documents or some, some kind of proof, you know, you'd be able to... to, to, to I, I don't disbelieve you, but I, 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 can't, I can't walk out on that plank. Nobody will say, like... I'm not asking well, you to I, do I, anything. I'm just telling you what happens. I work there. I lived there 23 years, and I'm telling you what goes on. And so, you know, it's under full knowledge of everybody who's in the system. Then there's no surprises here. And then when I worked in the restaurant business when I was a bartender, it's the same thing. You see in the hotel industry, landscaping, these, there's 13 million undocumented people working here. They're yeah, working they're, for somebody. They're not yeah, all farm no, workers. No, you're right. You're right. They're, they're working for somebody, and they're... And it is a labor issue, but again, you know, there's, there's something to be done. I'm certainly not the one to do it. Um, well, I'm asking you to, but when we get the state department in the hot seat, which never seems to happen, I never see Anthony Blinken and company. I have never seen the state department before Congress. Okay. Since I, I don't think I've seen that as a, as a spectacle since I've been alive. So the State Department needs to get get their booty handed to them before the American people for this, for this. And 
for the way that they are responding towards the American people over COVID. So with that, I'm going to take off. Okay. Um, you are delightful. And I, I need your challenging voice on this, on this phone calls. Everybody's gone and you're the, you're the last man standing. Um, okay, is there sure. anything you'd like to say before we cut out? Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you. All I would suggest is it's clearly evident. This is happening because uh, it's 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 corporate profiteering. There, my position is that from what I experienced, I always got laid off fighting the system. So there's no 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 Mexican, Guatemalan, or Chinese person took your job. In my opinion, it was given away by predatory corporate. This was bought the the the, the labor. Uh, regulation, the the mechanisms through government where it's not regulated, because it's 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 intentionally the 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 politicians are in their pockets, so they're not going to pass legislation, or if they do, it's not enforced. That's my experience. Do you follow okay. me? Okay, I'm I, I I'm glad you said that. I'm going to read this uh, this comment from Blonde Economist before sure. I got out of here. She didn't jump up on the mic. Um, she said, Sheila, I love the reading. I need to go back and listen to the beginning of yesterday's. Got to run now, but thank you again for sharing. Have a beautiful weekend, everyone. Um, and she did indicate that they are sterilizing confused children by shooting them up with hormones after telling them they'll be happier as the opposite gender, which is not okay. Um, and I think that that kind of ties in with what you were saying. And Gregor also said, does William ever talk about the subject at hand? <laughs> That's pretty broad spectrum. Well, I, mean, I don't know I where he listens to me. But, you know, I mean, I, I listened to you and we had a wonderful conversation. You're welcome back to talk to me 